This is the Education Gap Fly Show. I'm surprised that such forward thinking is happening in my home state. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gap Fly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Darrell Bradford. Darrell, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's been a minute. I appreciate it, though. Hey, it's been too long, but great to have you back. And since then, Darrell has risen to the presidency of 50CAN. Congrats on that. Really excited. Thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. All right. Well, guys, I have been feeling conflicted about an important issue facing schools this fall. And I think I have found myself perhaps on a different side of the issue from Darrell. And this doesn't happen very often these days. I mean, Darrell, I think I've known you for more than 20 years. and always tend to agree with you on almost everything. But on this one, we might disagree. So let's talk about it on Ed Reform Update. All right, so Darrell and David and listeners, the question is this, should school districts, charter schools, everybody tell parents, hey, it is time to send your kids back to school in person this fall. We're not gonna mess around anymore with this Zoomers and Rumors stuff. And that should be the default. Maybe if your kid has some kind of medical condition or there's a medical condition in the family, maybe there's some process you go through to petition to get some kind of online experience instead. Maybe that happens run by a different organization, but we're done with the Zoomers and Rumors. We're done with just giving everybody the option to do Zoom school if they want it. They need to get their butts back in the seats. And I say, yeah, I think it probably is time to do that. In the school choice world, including Durrell is saying, what about parental choice? So Durrell, and knowing, by the way, that, that the way this is playing out is it's much more likely for, for poor kids and kids of color and their families to be choosing remote learning and to say, at least to people asking these questions and surveys, that they, if given the option, would keep their kids home again next fall. So what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, so you kind of stole my thunder. You told people what I think. So I just want to start from this place. It's an important place to start from, right? So our position, my position during the pandemic, right? At the start of it, I was like, get good at virtual because school is going to be closed, right? And then when it became clear that schools were closed for political reasons, not epidemiological reasons, I was like, if a parent wants an in-person option, they should be able to get one, right? So I, I would say my position has been that I was as against depriving a parent of an in-person option as I am against depriving them of a virtual one after having given it to them for a year. Like it's a valuable thing for me. That said, like, I think your concern is valid, perhaps more indicative of the fact that lots of people gave substandard virtual and that very few kids were engaged in serious high quality programs of virtual instruction. But the fact of the matter is, in particular, a lot of families of color are scared as hell, right? They are not prepared to make the epidemiological leap to go back to school. And governors have basically said, we don't care. That's not even the message. That's what they've said. And they've delivered this centrally, sweeps everyone, right? Brushes everyone's fears and conditions under the the rug in the process. And I don't think we should get behind that. Here's the other important thing. And we can talk about a little bit more. Modality does matter, but it's like, I don't see how the answer to a year of disrupted or no school is to have fewer ways to give school, right? (laughs) And for whatever it is worth, like for some kids, bullied, upset, 
newly discovered, whatever, virtual is a good option, right? A good supplemental option, a good option for acceleration, right? Which I think is another thing to, to consider and certainly a good option to deliver, if not the whole package, some pieces of learning that school systems aren't particularly good at. And it's a mistake to eliminate that from the menu of optionality that now exists for parents, just because you want to make the teachers union happy. Before I, I give my counter argument, do we at least agree that the simultaneous sort of Zoomers and rumors thing, that part should go away? Yeah, the whole like the Zoom in a room where you come in and your teacher isn't there and you're online, that's ridiculous, right? Yeah. So, so I just want to highlight that. And I know that there are legit administrative problems with trying to teach kids who aren't in the room while you're in the room at the same time. Like that, like yeah. that seems to be like a real problem for lots of folks in, in, in involved. What I'm saying is that like, if I want a pure virtual option, I should yeah. be able to have one, especially after you force me to have one after a year, for a whole year. And I like it. I've made the decision. I respect the parents' right to make that decision. All right. So for example, Montgomery County, Maryland, where my kids go to school, they have announced they're creating a virtual academy. Uh, it's being set up by this guy that used to run the high school where my kids will go. Consulting with smart people like Michael Horn. They're, they're, sounds like they're trying to do this right. So I'm surprised that such forward thinking is happening in my home state. We'll see how it comes out. At the same time, they're saying regular school is back five days a week. We're going to be back in school. And so if you want the virtual experience, you've got to apply to be in that school and there'll be a process and you get in and, you know, basically anybody who wants in can get in, but they're going to pay attention to how kids are doing. If they're not doing well or showing up or, you know, then they're going to get kind of pushed back into the traditional setting. To me, that sounds reasonable. DC, something similar where they've said the default is in person, but there'll be some process where if you really need the virtual, you can get it. I understand, say, New Jersey, I think you're referring to maybe the governor there that said, you know, everybody's back. And New York City. And New York City saying, we're not doing it. But the counter argument here, Darrell, is that this experience with remote learning is not gone well for almost all kids. Okay, yes, there's a small percentage of kids who have discovered they like remote learning, right? They don't, it's, it's a break from being bullied. Maybe they feel like, wow, the teachers aren't, they're not dealing with racism like they're dealing with them the same way when they're in school. So those are all good reasons, Mike. I just want to Oh, they that. are. <laughs> yes. Okay. But they are exceptions, not the rule. The rule is kids at home are getting less time. They're getting lower quality instruction and they're falling behind. I mean, that's the data that we have. Less time, lower quality, and they are falling behind. And so, you know, we have good reason to believe that this past year has widened racial and socioeconomic achievement gaps, you know, because it has been poor kids and kids of color who are more likely to be at home full-time. In many cases, because to your point earlier, they didn't have the choice of getting to go in person, right? Because they went to school in San Francisco and they didn't open the schools or, you know, in other places where they didn't open the schools or the families, as you said, were scared as hell and they've kept the kids home. So, I mean, if you're an educational leader and you care about closing achievement gaps. I don't know. I don't know if those leaders exist anymore. (laughs) I I like to think so. You know, you say, I got to find a way to send the signal to families that school is safe. We want your kid there. Yes, there's a, there's a way out if you're really not open to it, but the default is we want you there. It's safe. Hey, especially if you're a middle school and high school, get the vaccination and come back. What's wrong with that? 
this isn't said negatively. I think you're conflating several very important issues that live really close to one another, but aren't the same issue. So having a default option with the choice to do something else is not what New York City or New Jersey are offering. They're saying, come back or else. So that's the first thing, right? And okay. so a default option with another thing is a different thing. Let's talk yeah. about that. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that like, while I'm on board of a big network of schools, we've been through this, I'm incredibly sympathetic to the data that you're citing because it's real, right? And a lot of low-income kids in particular had a hard time with virtual and that's real too, right? At the same time, we saw data early on that showed that even for all kids who were on virtual, the rich kids were doing better, right? I mean, they were like, they were accelerating, right? So, so it's almost like we had an achievement gap in, in school and then we have one that presented itself out of school as well, right? Which, which I don't have an answer for that, but that makes the discussion sticky and messy in a way that, that I feel like our normal discussions about student achievement are not. It's always really important to remember, as I'd like to cite to people, that in 2019, only 18% of African-American fourth graders read at or above proficient on the NAEP, right? It's not like we are talking about returning people to this stellar paradigm, right? Like it was a different kind of bad. This said, like those things all laying on top of one another, I think one of the most important things is noting that distance learning, like virtual instruction was delivered poorly, almost uniformly across this whole country, right? At the first shutdowns, teacher unions, some state departments of ed were basically like, you know what, in-person is the most important thing. So they didn't work hard on virtual. There was a race to the bottom over time, right? In the fall, many people got the worst version of it because nobody prepared for it, right? And now we're seeing the results of that. And if you do anything poorly, people who need the most help are going to get the worst result, right? So while I'm not saying, oh yeah, like magic virtual is falling out of the sky, I am saying that like we shouldn't paint virtual instruction as uniformly bad for all kids because for the most part, it was delivered badly uniformly. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for all kids uh, during the last year. Right. And it's a really good point that it's not like we're going back to this wonderful system that was crushing it before the pandemic. If we yeah. can only get kids back in those seats. Can I add one other thing? It's important, right? So tongue in cheek, I used to always say to people, why is it that if you can't go to your physical school, you still have to enroll in it online? We have like a universe of colleges, independent tutors, right? Like some charter networks, some districts, some independent schools who are really hitting it out of the park with virtual instruction. Why wouldn't we finance a system that allowed you to get that across all boundaries? Other than the fact that it just speaks to how, how much richer we could make the choosing experience for families, right? It also gets at the fundamental thing we talk about when we talk about school choice which is that where you live is the number one determinant of the kind of education you're going to get, right? right. And so th right. there's a paradigm shift that lives in this too that I think helps us make other arguments about a better way to deliver right. education. No, and, and this is where like Montgomery County saying, oh, well, we're going to set up this virtual option. You say, well, that's fine. It might be great. But what if I want a different virtual option? It's virtual. Right. <laughs> Why does it have to be here? David, jump in. Help us find the common ground. I think you guys have found it for the most part, right? I think, Mike, you're saying that this fall, it's reasonable if a district is offering a quality virtual option to insist that, you know, kids choose that option if they want to be virtual or parents. And, and I think I'm not quite sure what Darrell is saying, right, on that front. I mean, let me ask you this, Darrell. Like, 
I appreciate a rich choice environment, but just as a practical matter, I would rather have several virtual schools that are regulated as such than putting it on every physical building, every teacher, right, to be kind of a physical school and a virtual school. And so I guess I'm just curious, like we've all been operating in sort of triage mode and it's hard to know when to stop. You know, I mean, is is your position the same a year from now when we have COVID unequivocally under control? Fingers crossed. Yeah, I appreciate your provocation there. So again, to go back to the beginning, I am against denying the virtual option, right? I think that's the first thing, which is very different than, than describing the rules under which all schools should have to offer it. So I just want to put that out there. The second thing is like, I'm a choice person, right? Schools have choices to make too. And you could say, we're only doing in person, right? And I appreciate that. But I do think it is incumbent on states, especially because, but in DC, you know what they do? They print money and they drop it out of the sky on schools that aren't doing anything in buckets, right? So it's You're not- welcome, by the way. Yeah, anytime, anytime. Jersey, <laughs> thanks you. It's, it's not like there isn't the money in place to offer like, and I'll just say this conceptually, a district in the cloud or a platform or an exchange upon which everybody with a good virtual option can make it available to any parent that wants it, right? Florida, Florida virtual taught people in Alaska this year, right? So, so it's not like that isn't doable. I think that kind of alternative needs to be a part of the offering that states make in, in the future. And if individual schools don't want to do it, that's fine, right? Like I, I get that, but doing that in an environment where you say, and you cannot choose virtual is different than saying every school can decide on its own and saying, but there is a virtual option since we forced you into one for the last year. Yeah, and, and maybe what New Jersey's governor really should have said was, hey, New Jersey's 600 school districts, you all have to offer a five-day-a-week in-person experience to any family that wants to this year. I mean, what he's trying to clamp down on is what the school districts, limit the school districts' freedom of, of option to not open the schools. Separate question is to limit the freedom of option of the parents. So I appreciate your cynicism there, right? Because I have heard that there are lots of school districts that they're like, they're waffling on opening in the fall. And I can appreciate that, that saying no virtual option eliminates the school district's right to, to do that. So, I, so I, I totally get that. At the same time, right, the, the other thing that is served there is you force everybody back into the one best system. And you can't ignore that there are financial implications around that because these school districts, whether or not they do or don't want to open, are absolutely interested in recapturing millions of kids across the country who have chosen other things, right, for whom they still got the money. All right. Well, well said. We'll have to leave it there, Darrell. Always so much fun having you on the show. And thank you for helping us think through this tough, tough question that uh, that states, charter schools, everybody's got to figure out for the fall. Thank you very much. All right. So again, Darrell Bradford, president of 50CAN. Thanks for coming on. I hope you come back sometime soon. Happy to, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. How are things down in Richmond? Oh, it's pretty steamy. 
Must make you all hot during your pickleball games. Oh, man, I was pouring sweat last night after work, telling you, but we were still out there. But, hey, the courts were pretty open because I think the heat scared everybody off, but not us, you know, really dedicated pickleballers. Well, you know, the 80-year-olds have to be careful about that heat. (laughs) Yeah. Does anyone have any tips on the office air conditioning, Mike? Kidding, not kidding. (laughs) I'm dying over here. Email Gary. I think he controls it from home. So. Ah. Amazing. Uh-huh. There's an yeah, app for I, that, I, David. You turn up the heat so that uh, <laughs> try to get some of these reports done faster. That's not research-based. Okay, what is research-based is the Research Minute. What you got for us, Amber? All right. We have a new study from one of the IES regional labs. I think, Mike, you passed this one along. It examines which indicators in middle and high school are good predictors of post-secondary readiness and success. I mean, I don't think we're going to find the results of this study hugely surprising, but I think we have to remember that even though it might not seem so surprising to us, it's pretty useful to state and local officials on the ground because they're trying to identify these students who are off track and they are trying to implement interventions uh, to help these kids and uh, to better direct their resources. So it's useful, I think, for those types of purposes. Analysts used student-level data from Arkansas for school years 2008-2009 through 2017-18. For students enrolled in grade 6 in 2008-9 or 9-10, about 64,000 of them. They tracked them for eight years. They're examining whether middle and high school indicators, including ELA, math, and science standardized scores, expulsions, suspensions, chronic absenteeism, GPA, and advanced coursework predict post-secondary readiness via the ACT score of 19 or higher, which is what ACT uses to say, you know, you're ready for, you know, freshman um, success in college. And they're also looking at college enrollment within eight years of beginning grade six and college persistence, which in this case is enrollment in more than one term within eight years of beginning grade six. So that's kind of a low bar for college persistence, uh, just more than one term. Uh, They say something is predictive when a student's predictive likelihood of attaining this outcome, whatever it is, is at least 50%. And then they calculate attainment for various subgroups and students by background characteristics. So I'll go real quickly on the descriptive side. Only 60% of kids in Arkansas took the ACT. And of that group, 39% of them met the readiness standard. Again, ACT score of 19 or higher, which I thought was pretty pretty decent. 58% of students enrolled in college and nearly all of them persisted, meaning attended for more than one term. And again, I think that's a low bar. That's why we saw those persistence uh, metrics were so high. Attainment of post-secondary readiness via the ACT was lower for black, Hispanic, kids, kids with special needs, low-income kids, and kids uh, who were English language learners. And then on the predictive accuracy front, um, the various middle and high school indicators improved the predictive accuracy for each outcome compared to models that included student background characteristics alone. So that's not surprising when they added all these other things that accuracy got better and better. Uh, More precisely, after student background characteristics were controlled for, these middle school indicators accurately predicted the ACT scores in college enrollment and persistence for 70 to 82% of students. 
And these high school indicators that I mentioned accurately predicted the outcomes for 75 to 83% of students. And then we get even more specific than that. In middle school, math and ELA proficiency were predictors for all three outcomes. Again, ACT, readiness, enrollment, and persistence. Whereas regular attendance, no suspensions or expulsions uh, were predictive of enrollment and persistence only, not the ACT thing. And then when we look at high school, the following predicted at least two of those three outcomes in this order. So these go from 25, uh, 24 percentage points more likely down to 11 percentage points more likely. So enrolling in at least one advanced course, never being expelled, attaining a GPA of 2.8 or higher, and not being chronically absent. Meaning in this case, they were present more than 90% of the days they were enrolled. The only thing, cause I'm like, okay, well, what wasn't predictive, right? Because you know, all this stuff we kind of know about. Uh, the only thing that they examined that was not predictive was enrollment in a community service course in high school. And then in the, I dug into the appendices because I just wanted to see, you know, what do, what do we know about other things that are predictive that we don't have good measures on? Because you can't obviously measure what you don't have. And they talked a little bit about, you know, there's been other research that have shown, particularly that soft skills, goal setting, time management, self-monitoring, and also knowledge of things about transitioning from high school. So understanding course sequences, knowledge of financial aid and your application options, all those procedures of how you, you know, navigate enrolling from to college. All those things have been shown to also predict success on these outcomes. But again, we've got to be able to measure that stuff. So really interesting. In my mind, I know it's not surprising, but it, it is important on a couple of fronts. I mean, first of all, the fact that the middle school test scores were predictive of the ACT test scores. Again, not mm -hmm. surprising, but we often hear people saying that, oh, these test scores don't matter. They you know, don't relate to anything in the real world. Well, they do relate to how you do on it another test and they seem to relate to college going and some college persistence measures. So now my understanding is that that becomes less the case once you get into high school, right? You said that mm -hmm. the, in the high school level, some of those behavioral measures, GPAs, attendance seem to be more predictive. Discipline. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so that's interesting too, that then maybe the, the test scores are more important in the early years. Shout out to Patrick Wolf, who is the one that alerted me to this study. I guess he was a peer reviewer on it. And, you know, good for Patrick, because we've had a debate over the years about how much these test scores can be predictive of real world outcomes. And, you know, he and some colleagues have been skeptical of some of that. And so appreciate that. Of course, we wish we could get college completion. Why can't they look at the college completion question, Amber? Right. Good question. I don't know. It adds more time, right? You got to wait for enough time to see if kids complete or not. So, yeah. Yeah. J David, what do you think? Yeah, I mean... Reading between the lines, right, I guess it just seems like academics and behavior are, I don't know, maybe they start to, to separate from each other as kids get older, right? When you're young, right, it's kind of third, fourth, fifth grade. The behavior stuff is there, obviously, right? But it really starts to swamp everything else as you reach ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, right? And to me, I mean, when I'm hearing these things, right, it just... It's like the problem that we just have not been able to solve in education reform, right? It's ever present. It's there. We're losing kids in high school. We're losing them 
not even necessarily because they can't read, right? We're losing them because whatever sort of latent behavioral issues just becomes so much more severe as the kids get older and testosterone kicks in, et cetera, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think I also just want to highlight the attendance piece, right? I just feel like we're not talking about this enough right now as a country, right? But I'm terrified of sort of what is happening Well, we just had this conversation with Darrell, right? And there is a counter argument, but personally, I'm terrified about the way being out of school is being normalized. And I think if it really does become normalized, then it may not matter what else we do in the next three to four years, we're going to lose a generation of kids. You know, I think it's worth reminding people, like, we cannot allow chronic absenteeism to be something that affects 95% of kids or whatever the percentage is, right? I mean, it is a deadly, hard to stop virus of its own when it comes to kids' educational outcomes. Yeah, I mean, look, if states back away from strict requirements around seat time for school districts, right, 180 days a year, uh, we will see that school districts will stop teaching as much time. That has been my experience in Montgomery County with our asynchronous learning days. By the way, including next Wednesday, which is the last day of school. What are the kids supposed to be learning on the last day of school at home virtually by themselves? They're going to do homework for oh, September? Right. Oh, please. That concludes right. like, as personal podcast. About, yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, we also, as we talked about with Darrell, that some families, if you don't make them send their kids to school, are not going to send their kids to school. I think part of where we were maybe disagreeing that didn't come out enough in that conversation, Mike, is we need a vaccine that goes all the way down, right? Yes. I mean, we're all sort of assuming that the, the sort of minimum age is going to keep dropping, right? And I do think there are valid counter arguments if it doesn't. Um, right. But if it does, I guess I'm with you, right? We need to take a tough line with this. How well, crazy that we have been so anti-seat time as a measure, and now we're like, oh gosh, if we don't have that, <laughs> we may really be in trouble. It's amazing right. how your priorities change when you get a global pandemic. Yeah. And we're just reminded that these rules were created for a reason. Now, of course, we would like to transcend them, come up with something better. Sure, if we can move to competency, mastery, all of that sounds great, but you can't just get rid of the requirements. Unfortunately, there are bad actors out there we are seeing. I think the idea was that we would, yes, that you would prove your competence, right? And that would allow you to get out of seat time, not that we would simply stop caring about either, which is where we're headed at the rate we're going. All right. Well, thank you, Amber. Hey, this is good stuff. I do hope that states pay attention to it as they think about the ways that they hold kids accountable and schools accountable in middle school and high school, right? We should use the indicators that actually matter for long-term outcomes. Okay, gang, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.